in which traditional definitions of the cosmopolitan are reformulated and re-signified to accommodate the experience of oppressed minorities. Um, as I will outline, queer cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism is comprised of diverse a- attributes. It can be used to describe how fluid identities are created through exile, relative forms of privilege within queer communities, discomfort within one's native land, as well as the ability to identify across minority identity categories. So I first want to start by summarising how the Queer Expatriate Literary Network in Berlin emerged. Um, The Orden generation are closely identified with the popular mythology of Weimar-era Berlin. This group of writers, a large amount of whom were queer-identified and who came to prominence in the 1930s, included the novelist Christopher Isherwood and the poets W.H. Orden and Stephen Spender. In the late 1920s, they all felt a pull toward Weimar-era Germany. Dissatisfied in post-World War I England, the group sought out more open and tolerant environments in which they could explore their queer sexualities. In Berlin, and this is summarising some of the uh, argument of Robert Beachy's book, Gay Berlin, um, Birthplace of a Modern Identity, which came out in 2014, which is like a historical study of um, the emergence of a gay rights activism movement within Germany from the late 19th century to um, the early 1930s. Um, So in Berlin, there was a rapid growth and increased visibility of the city's homosexual scene after 1890. Although Germany's paragraph 175 criminalised homosexual acts, the Berlin police tolerated homosexual bars and entertainment venues, as well as same-sex fraternisation within certain limits. In the Weimar period, Berlin was the home of, this is a quote from Beachy, vibrant nightlife culture and cabarets, male prostitution and indifferent officialdom. Um, indeed, Isherwood gave the definitive statement of his and Auden's attraction to Germany's capital when he wrote in his 1976 memoir, Christopher and His Kind, that, quote, Berlin meant boys. And here, similarly, you see the idea that the city is conflated with queer sexuality. As I think the talk on um, the French expatriate writers, yes, was kind of exploring this idea as well. Um, Auden, Isherwood and Spender all expatriated themselves to Germany, living there intermittently from the late 1920s to the early 1930s. Auden was the first of the writers to migrate to Germany. After graduating from Oxford, the young poet, aged 21, first visited the country in October 1928 and lived there mainly in Berlin until July 1929. In March 1929, Isherwood visited Auden for a week and would later move to Berlin, living there until a few weeks after Hitler came to power in early 1933. Auden and Isherwood's presence in the city led to the establishment of an expatriate, queer, artistic and literary network centred around Berlin as the writers promoted the city's permissiveness to their friends back in England and others would follow. Um, Spender broke off his studies to move to Hamburg in July 1929 and would visit Isherwood regularly in Berlin, and John Lehman, who worked at the Hogarth Press as a publisher and was also a writer, um, was also seduced by Isherwood's pro-German propaganda. After meeting Isherwood in London for the first time in 1932, Lehman wrote that he had, quote, fallen under the spell of Isherwood's Berlin legend. Um, The motivations of all these writers to move to German-speaking Europe, rather than being purely sexual, were also creative. They were all attracted to the flourishing creative scene in Weimar, Germany, the home of subversive cabaret, the Bauhaus movement, and expressionist cinema. These writers were not only fleeing sexual repression in England, um, but creative repression too. 
One month after Auden first visited Berlin, there was an uproar surrounding the publication of Radcliffe Hall's gay protest novel, The Well of Loneliness, in 1928, resulting in an obscenity trial and the ultimate banning of the book in November of that year. Spender describes how um, Germany seemed a paradise where there were no censorship and young Germans, where there was no censorship and young Germans enjoyed extraordinary freedom in their lives. Censorship, more than anything else, created in the minds of young English writers an image of their country as one to get away from, much as in the early 1920s, early, sorry, early 20s, prohibition resulted in young Americans like Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald leaving America and going to France or Spain. For them, drink. For us, sex. <laughs> as a catalyst for expatriation, what is particularly interesting here is the role sex takes on as a reaction to censorship. It becomes both a pursuit in itself and material for literature, both of which were repressed in contemporary England. It is important for Spender not just to indulge in same-sex erotic encounters, but to transform them into literature. In the works the Auden generation produced about Berlin, they explore the common experience of sexual and creative exile. As an expression of shared concerns, these texts describe queer cosmopolitan identities in which sexual minorities disconnect from primary national identifications in order to form new international communities of belonging. So, first of all, I want to try and define queer cosmopolitanism. Um, I want to consider how minority identities can become linked with um, cosmopolitan identities. So, cosmopolitanism has come to be seen as a quality of independent transnational elitism what Bruce Robbins summarises as a detachment from the bonds, commitments and affiliations that constrain ordering ordinary nation-bound lives, a luxuriously free-floating view from above, end quote. However, this ignores the history of the term as it has been used to, to refer to diverse population groups, including marginal subjects whose transnational experiences, as Bruce Robbins uh, also states, are, quote, underprivileged, even, indeed often coerced, as Paul Rabinoff additionally highlights, the term cosmopolitanism has been applied, quote, during different epochs to Christians, aristocrats, merchants, Jews, homosexuals, and intellectuals. Rabinoff defines cosmopolitanism, or redefines cosmopolitanism, as an ethos of macro interdependencies with an, uh, an acute consciousness, often forced upon people, of the inescapabilities and particularities of places, characters, historical trajectories and fates. For these critics, then, cosmopolitanism is not necessarily a privileged and active identity category. John Lehman um, captures this alternative co um, cosmopolitanism created through forms of control in his fictionalised memoir in the purely pagan sense from 1976, which details his time in Vienna and Berlin. He says that, quote, Homosexuals are adventure seekers, rejecting the rules that tie conventional society together. Freedom, yes, that's it. They're symbols of freedom, in spite of the fact that they're under close discipline, perhaps paradoxically because of it. Um, here, Lehman explores the seeming contradiction that restriction creates cosmopolitan freedom. So I'm diverging here from recent theories of queer cosmopolitanism that focus on the era, era of globalisation in which relative levels of privilege dictate transnational movement and the ability of an individual to adopt, adopt an unbounded internationalist identity. To talk about queer cosmopolitanism in the context of the expatriate writers of early 20th century Berlin 
is to recognise that although transnational migration itself may be dictated by forms of privilege, the historical forces that produced such movement, movement were severe due to the criminalisation and pathologization of homosexuals in England at the time. My focus is therefore on involuntary rather than voluntary um, queer cosmopolitanism of the interwar period. Um, so first I want to look at different features of queer cosmopolitanism as they're expressed in this um, body of literature. Um, first of all, I'd like to think about the idea that fluid internationalist identities can emerge through exile. An important early work in the tradition of the queer expatriate narrative set in Weimar Berlin is the American expatriate publisher and writer Robert McCallman's three linked short stories titled, titled Distinguished Air, Grim Fairy Tales. Um, McCallman was part of the expatriate modernist circle in Paris where he married the English writer Breyer. He founded the Contact Publishing Group and brought out many important modernist texts, including Hemingway's first book and Gertrude Stein's The Making of Americans. Um, his Distinguished Air was published in 1925 by the Paris-based Three Mountains Press. The stories document a Berlin scene, with rife, a Berlin scene rife with drugs populated by rootless homosexual expatriates. The second of the stories from the collection, called Miss Knight, was praised by James Joyce and Ezra Pound. The story focuses on an American homosexual cocaine addict and drag artist from rural Illinois who has found herself in Berlin after stints working in Paris and Italy. The story freely shifts between male and female pronouns to describe the protagonist, who belongs to a group of what McCallman calls American Brothers in Sisterhood in Berlin. Um, Miss Knight's shift between gender categories illustrates the often complex relationship between biological sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation that um, exist in the context of queer identities. So this is basically the argument of Judith Butler in um, Gender Trouble, who argues that compulsory heterosexuality works to conceal gender discontinuities that run rampant within heterosexual, bisexual, and gay and lesbian contexts in which gender does not necessarily flow from sex and desire or sexuality generally does not seem to flow from gender. What I find interesting is that these plural discontinuities in queer identity in McCallman's story are expressed in spatial terms. So near the end of the story, Miss Knight disappears from Berlin, penniless and despondent, until another character, still in Berlin, receives a letter from her. The recipient of the letter exclaims, this is the second quote. That one, if Miss Knight was run over by a truck or a steamroller, she'd turn up, about to appear in Paris or London or Madrid or Singapore. She's just that international. <laughs> Miss Knight's cosmopolitanism appears to be fused to her queerness here. It is, if, it is as if her ability to shift freely between geographical spaces illustrates the plural positions she occupies within the matrix of sex, gender and sexuality. So now I want to move on to talk about uh, cosmopolitanism and queer privilege. Um, in addition to being among the most famous British writers of the 1930s, Auden and Isherwood are also two of Berlin's most famous sex tourists. Um, male prostitution ballooned in the city after World War I, due, as Beachy describes, to the country's economic instability and the chaotic demobilisation of millions of German soldiers. All of Ish Auden and Isherwood's homosexual relationships with Germans in Weimar Berlin involved either the exchange of money or some other material reward. 
Many of these prostitutes were not queer-identified, but forced through economic hardship into sex work, what McCalman calls in Distinguished Air the, quote, war-made queer ones. Um, among the literary accounts of these encounters are six poems Auden wrote in his uh, very bad German, um, most likely in England around 1930 after a summer trip to Berlin. Auden sent them to Isherwood for him to look over, who was still in Berlin, and Isherwood re would later refer to Auden's early German poetry in a 1937 essay. He said, Their style can best be imagined by supposing that a German writer should attempt a sonnet sequence in a mixture of Cockney and Tennysonian English without being able to command either. Um, the poems reflect on the relationship between expatriate sex tourists and German male prostitutes in Berlin, engaging the themes of power asymmetry in queer sex and the limits of communication, itself perhaps a form of failed cosmopolitanism in that Auden is not able to master the language completely, so he's not fully a cosmopolitan in that sense. Um, so I'm going to quote from one poem that, translated by David Constantine, and this is a, what he calls an unliteral version um, of one of the poems in the series, because he's trying to make sense of Auden's confused German. Um, so this is the poem on the slide. It's raining on me in the Scottish lands. I'm in a place where you have never been. There's arty conversation at weekends. I'm home again. I'm not still in Berlin. But things like this, they always end the same. We've said our feeders ain't for good, I know. It can't be helped and you're not to blame. Don't lose your beauty sleep. I wonder, though, on Sundays when you all meet up to catch some little train and you're about to climb aboard, whether you'll turn and watch the big transcontinentals pulling out. But then go with the gent who's kissing you. I haven't paid. Do what you have to do. The poem begins by contrasting the speaker's transnational movements with the German lover's lack of travel experience. Auden is able to fulfil his desires through trips to Berlin, but his lover is not able to visit him in Scotland. Auden's world of arty conversation and regular travel between Britain and continental Europe contrasts with his lover's provincialism, or at least his ascribed provincialism. Um, this is illustrated well through the imagery of travel in the third stanza. When the German takes the slow Sunday trains, Auden asks him to watch the big transcontinentals leaving the stations and to think of him. The two modes of travel reflect different experiences of queer sex in Weimar Berlin. On the one hand, the limitations of the local for the German, and on the other, the freedoms of the transnational for the British expatriate. Auden's experience of sexual exile from England endows him with queer cosmopolitanism, but it is nevertheless dependent on his access to class and national privilege. So the next aspect I'd like to consider is um, the idea of queer foreignness in the expatriate text. Isherwood called himself a foreigner by temperament, which succinctly describes another facet of queer cosmopolitanism, the alignment of homosexuality with foreignness. This is an identification beyond the bounds of the nation, produced through one's outsider status in the native environment. Elsewhere, in a BBC documentary from 1969, Isherwood states that he is, quote, really a born foreigner, end quote. This fusion of queerness and foreignness occurs, I argue, due to geographical sexual binaries. The native environment becomes associated with the sexually transgressive. No, that's the opposite. <laughs> the native environment becomes associated with the sexually normative, whereas the foreign space becomes associated with the sexually transgressive. Of course, these associations were historically and socially produced due to the criminal status of homosexuals in Britain up until the late 1960s, which led queer cosmopolitanism 
queer cosmopolitans to seek refuge in spaces other than the native country. Isherwood recounts in Christopher and His Kind that on his third visit to Berlin in November 1929, that when the German passport official asked him, asked him the purpose of his journey, he could have truthfully replied, I'm looking for my homeland and I've come to find out if this is it, end quote. For Isherwood, the foreign space can potentially become a sexual homeland for the queer outsider. In the expatriate narratives of Berlin, such queer cosmopolitanism often intersects with or finds points of recognition in other minority identities. The queer sexuality of the narrator of Isherwood's 1939 novel Goodbye to Berlin, who is also called Christopher Isherwood, um, his sexuality is obscured in the text and mainly established through silences, code and omission, so what Eve Sedgwick would call the closeted discourse. Nevertheless, the narrator's friendship with a successful German-Jewish businessman called Bernard Landauer leads to a common recognition of minority cosmopolitanism, which Susan Roshi proposes, quote, emanates from not being at home in the world, end quote. Um, Landauer's internationalism partly stems from his business affairs, which take him all over Europe, but it also appears to be related to his Jewishness in the text. This section of the novel is set in October 1930, at which point the Jewish population were under increasing threat in Germany. This environment made people like Landauer begin to feel like outsiders or foreign within their own country. I refer back to Rabinov's point that cosmopolitanism may be an acute consci consciousness forced upon groups of people. Landauer recognises that Ish Christopher also does not belong to his native environment. Um, <coughs> So this is the next quote. This is Bernard Landauer speaking to Christopher. It is strange how people seem to belong to places, especially to places where they were not born. When I first went to China, it seemed to me that I was at home there for the first time in my life. Perhaps when I die, my spirit will be wafted to Peking. Um, Landauer seems aware that Christopher's experience of repression in England has pushed him into a search for a sexual homeland, while also foreseeing that Germany will soon force him into exile on account of his ethnicity. We see Landauer lay claim to cosmopolitanism as a potential means of survival. He proposes to Christopher that they leave Berlin immediately to pick up visas in Warsaw, travel on to Moscow, and then take the Trans-Siberian train from there. Christopher laughs the plan off at the time, treating it as a joke, but he later recognises it as Landauer's, quote, last, most daring and most cynical experiment upon us both, for now I am certain, absolutely convinced, that his offer was perfectly serious. So the text in this scene dramatises a shared recognition of minority identities that may produce a sense of being foreign or queer in one's native land. Fearful of the persecution of Jewish people and homosexuals that would soon come to pass in Germany, Landauer projects beyond the nation, showing how much the experience or fear of exile may produce a cosmopolitan outlook. So I'd like to conclude um, by briefly outlining how sexual exile can lead to forming transnational communities of belonging for sexual minorities. Um, queer cosmopolitanism and sexual exile, um, sorry to repeat myself there, um, in a passage from Christopher and His Kind, Isherwood walked through the museum of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Science. Um, Isherwood actually lived in the building which housed the institute when he first moved to Berlin. Um, Magnus Hirschfeld, if you don't know, was a German physician and sexologist um, and one of the first gay rights activists who petitioned for the repeal of paragraph 175 in Germany. Um, so in the museum, Christopher observes 
this is the next quote, a gallery of photographs ranging in subject matter from the sexual organs of quasi-hermaphrodites to famous homosexual couples, Wilde with Alfred Douglas, Whitman with Peter Doyle, Ludwig of Bavaria with Kainz, Edward Carpenter with George Merrill, Christopher Giggle because he was embarrassed. He was embarrassed because at last he was being brought face to face with his tribe. In a subsequent encounter with André Gide and Hirschfeld at the museum, Isherwood sheds the embarrassment that's expressed here and now perceives, this is the second quote, that they were all three of them on the same side, whether Christopher liked it or not, and later he would learn to honour them both as heroic leaders of his tribe. Queer cosmopolitanism allows Isherwood to identify across national differences as part of an international tribe of sexual minorities. He is finally able to participate in a cosmopolitan queer community that rejects primary national identifications and their attendant systems of repression. In conclusion, the cosmopolitanism expressed in the queer expatriate narrative of Berlin um, is expressive of both an individual's sexual marginality and their experience of coerced exile or detachment from the homeland due to their native nation's suppression of queer desire. In this sense, it is a form of cosmopolitanism produced by national constraints rather than a voluntary self-extension beyond the nation. This body of literature <coughs> provides us with deep insight into the queer cosmopolitanism of sexual minorities, whose movements are, and in many parts of the world continue to be, catalyzed under great social stress. Thanks.